With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There should be superfluous documentation of that, yeah. You know, this has all the, the trappings of a, of a grand conspiracy. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. ago, we aired Season 8, Episode 7 of our series on the double homicide of Agnes and Lloyd Courtney. During that episode, I broke down the full offense report created by lead investigator Detective Matt Hardy. Throughout the course of breaking that report down, I discovered several discrepancies where it appears that certain information, and anywhere where there was a possibility of any exculpatory information, suggesting that Deborah Perringer didn't commit these murders seems to have been left out of the report. After hearing that episode, and after reviewing the DNA materials that I had sent to her after she appeared on the show, DNA expert Dr. Angie Ambers sent me an email. While I was working on the offense report, Angie was working on the DNA reports. And after she gave me a brief summary of the things that she had found in the reports, I asked her to come back on the show and join me once again to explain to me and all of you what she's found. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Dr. Ambers, I, after last week's episode, received a scathing email from you. Let's not say that. <laughs> uh, about the, the things that have, uh, have been uncovered about the case. Uh, scathing might not be the right word, but you were, uh, you were definitely shocked to hear some things, not so surprised to hear some things. Uh, and you, you sent me a lot of information. You've done an analysis of the, uh, the DNA reports that we were able to get our hands on up to this point. Uh, so I wanted to get you back on the phone and have you... One, talk about your thoughts on the case up to where we're at now, and then two, to talk about the summary and the the detailed breakdown that you've done with the DNA evidence. Sure, absolutely. And I should say, you know, I finally got caught up on all of your episodes, and when I listened to your episode on part one of the investigation, I, I knew that there was no way that Fort Worth PD let this evidence sit around for five months before they started the DNA testing. I mean, this was one of their own people. This was 
someone that worked for the Fort Worth Police Department and his wife that were brutally murdered and coming from someone that worked as a forensic DNA analyst and continues to do so, you've brought up issues about backlogs and yada yada and that might, you know, perhaps could have explained the delay. I can tell you that we do prioritize cases like this. There are high profile cases like this and especially ones that would be dear to the heart of the Fort Worth Police Department because the victims were part of their own um, law enforcement family. I just knew that I didn't have any proof at that, you know, when I first told you that, but I just knew that they would have prioritized this case. And so to listen to you dive deeper into the police report, which I myself had not done previously at the time I had the time with my new job, but to hear that there was documentation in there that they were, that the Fort Worth Police Department's DNA lab indeed was doing DNA testing and continuing to do DNA testing over the course of those four or five months before they sent the evidence to a private lab for testing. I mean, I literally was screaming at my house saying, you know, I, I knew it. I knew that had to be the case because I know how things work in casework. I will say one of the things that jumped out to me was the name of the analyst that Detective Hardy had mentioned he had turned over the evidence to to begin DNA testing. And I don't remember her last name, but I know it didn't match what I had previously investigated, but her first name was Carla. Right. It was Carla Davis, I think. Yeah, so you we need your audience to do a deeper dive into this. So I've I've looked I've kind of done a superficial investigation of what was happening with the Fort Worth PD's DNA lab during that time and what resulted in suspension of casework, you know, why they were being audited and investigated. And, you know, this is not me throwing someone under the bus. It's it's widely <laughs> presented in the media that the name of the person that during that time period was, I guess she was, call her the scapegoat. I don't know the entire story, but the person that they were naming in the press is the reason that DNA casework got suspended in the Fort Worth PD crime lab was because of the bad practices of an analyst named Carla Carmichael, I think was her last name. So it's a different last name. I don't know if there was a marriage at some point during that year, and it's a maiden name, a married name, or maybe it's a completely different person. And perhaps there was more than one person involved, but that's that's the analyst that was reported as the problem when all of this was happening and when they got their casework operation shut down. So I saw some articles about that, and I did find it interesting. I don't know, I'll have to do a little more digging if it's the same person, but it, it is worth noting that in the police reports, Carla is spelled with a K, K-A-R-L-A, and then the, the Carla that was cited as being the uh, the reason for the lab being shut down was spelled the same way. So it, I don't know how yeah. big the lab was, how many people there were, but that's a, I guess it's kind of a unique spelling of Carla. So I, I'd be interested to find out if it's the same person. Yeah, my thinking is the same. That is kind of a unique spelling. The other thing that that I will note in listening to your two episodes on the investigation, that I think you're, well, 
before I jump forward to this, let me say I've really liked for your audience and your team to dive deeper into the records of what exactly were the citations that the lab was receiving that resulted in their suspension of casework. I can say, again, in my superficial investigation, some things that have been thrown out in the media, as well as some things that have been reported in appeals of people that were convicted and then appealed their conviction because the DNA testing was done during that time period. Some of the things that have been mentioned are uh, sample contamination, uh, mislabeling of evidence, non-concordant results. So when, for example, the Fort Worth PD DNA crime lab had done testing on evidence and then maybe a defense attorney had hired an independent lab to corroborate those results and they got different results. That was one of the red flags. And again, this is stuff when the Fort Worth PD DNA lab was shut down when they suspended their casework operations. What happens in casework when something like that happens is the state of Texas has to send out they have to go back and review all the cases that that particular analyst or analyst worked on, and they have to send letters to all of the convicted inmates and all the people that were convicted based on DNA evidence that was processed by that particular analyst or analyst. Again, I don't know if there was more than one person involved. And essentially what they're doing is they're notifying that inmate that there was an issue, there's been an issue identified with the practices of that particular analyst and you're being notified as this could be a potential grounds for investigation and appeal of your case. And I don't know, I'm I'm interested to know if Deborah received one of those letters. I don't know that information, but I can tell you that your audience that has a little bit more free time than I do, aside from the media reports, like the news reports about the casework lab getting shut down, There were numerous subsequent appeals based on the lab getting shut down. And those appeals are generally publicly available online uh, if a decision has been handed down, if the conviction was affirmed, and or vice versa. So there's detail in those appeals regarding what was suspected of going on in the laboratory or what was documented. And I should add to that, I would recommend Allison Clayton and the other attorneys at the Innocence Project that are handling this case, they should be asking through discovery, they should be subpoenaing the records of the Fort Worth PD DNA Lab's audit that resulted in the lab getting shut down. And they should also be asking for the personnel file of the person or persons in the lab that were allegedly responsible for the lab getting shut down because there should be a formal report of that. Right. That So that stuff I'll, I'll pass on to Allison. She may already be working on that. I, I do know that after our, our first conversation, I immediately reached out to her and asked Allison if she could reach out to Orchid Cellmark to get the all the raw data and the electropharograms that, that you requested. So I think that's in the process right now. And then I've also just fired off some open records requests, follow-up open records requests with the Fort Worth Police Department regarding a lot of the items that were missing specifically to this conversation, any and all reports generated by the Fort Worth PD Crime Lab regarding DNA testing that were not included. And 
along those lines before we jump too much further ahead. Can I ask you, uh, as someone who's worked in these labs and has done this work, I'm a little curious about the process. So all I have are these little blurbs. So we know just within a few days after the murder, we see the notation that Carla Davis says that she is going to begin DNA testing. A couple months later, it says she's going to resume testing. And then she says she's going to begin testing again. And then she says she's passing it along. So just based on that limited knowledge working in the lab, do you think there's any possibility that going to begin testing and resuming testing means that she's done no testing in those months? Absolutely not. So first and foremost, what you dug up in that investigation report or the police report was verification that they did indeed, as I previously hypothesized, they did indeed prioritize the processing of that evidence because he turned that over to Carla with the DNA lab relatively quickly and submitted it for DNA testing. Typically, so I can explain the basic workflow. So what we do initially is we do a series of screening tests on the evidence, presumptive and confirmatory tests to determine if there's blood, semen, saliva, some kind, some type of biological fluid present. And then whatever we get positive results from with those screening tests, we proceed with DNA extraction. And then, you know, that can take days to weeks, depending on the number of items of evidence that are being tested. And then we quantify the DNA. We we check to see, one, were we successful at recovering DNA from the evidence? And if so, how much DNA did we re- recover? Because that affects, or that's kind of a predetermining factor for what our downstream DNA test results will be. So, I, you know, gosh, this is kind of a frustrating topic for me, but I will say... One thing I should note to your listeners is that we are not, maybe maybe the Fort Worth PD's DNA lab did some testing and they got no results, and that's why they passed it along. We're not allowed to do testing and not report our results. That's the type of thing that will get casework suspended at your laboratory. Even if you tested 100 items of evidence and you got absolutely no DNA results. There still has to be a summary report, a formal report written up, not just about the results that were obtained, but how much of the sample was consumed during testing, how much remains for future testing. And there's, it's documentation of the work that was done. So the fact that those particular records have not been turned over is a big no-no in casework. We're not allowed to do that. And would they generate each step that you just mentioned, like even if they never got, let's say they never got to a point where they did the, you know, the complete testing with results and building profiles, each step along the way, no matter how far they got there, am I, am I correct in saying there should be some sort of documentation documenting that? There should be superfluous documentation of that, yeah. You know, this has all the, the trappings of a, of a grand conspiracy, which I generally tend not to lean into. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but then what what got me, and I'm sure you heard me um, getting a little bit emotionally fired up at the end of this last episode, all of a sudden now I'm seeing, when we look at the entire investigation outside of the DNA, now I see a pattern. You know, For example, just a, just a basic one. Deborah says at 11 in the morning, she had already left her parents' house and went to CeCe's Pizza for lunch. In Hardy's report, 
We have no indication whatsoever that he ever went to CeCe's Pizza to verify that. And, and as an, I'm not, not a DNA analyst, but as an investigator myself, I find that preposterous. You, you, you will never convince me that he didn't go to CeCe's Pizza to try and attempt to verify that. And the fact that it was left out of the report, along with the huge laundry list of anything that could potentially be exculpatory, all these items are left out of his report, that now all of a sudden when we go back and look at this DNA, looking at it through that same lens that they're just they're cherry picking and pulling anything out that isn't helpful to their case, now all of a sudden it doesn't seem like such a grand conspiracy, and it seems almost like par for the course. Well, and, you know... Now you know why I've moved halfway across the country and still can't put this case behind me because it, you know, as I told you in, during our first interview, it wasn't the DNA to begin with that got me intrigued with this case and, and drew my attention because I didn't have the summary reports that you've since shared with me. There were all these other things about the case and, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theory person either, but at the same time, you know, to me, this is part of the justice process. What people don't understand, you know, they look at, you'll hear comments about people like myself that do consulting, and they'll say that, oh, you're a hired gun. Well, here's the, first of all, I haven't been paid a cent, not a single penny to review any of this stuff, and I've worked, if I billed for every hour that I've worked on this case, I could probably pay my house off and retire. Right. That's how much time I've put into it. But here's the thing. I think it's pretty clear that Deborah did not have a fair trial. Her defense attorney, in my opinion, did not bring up the right issues. He didn't hire an outside independent forensic DNA consultant to ask for these results, to review the results. So people like myself, like the concept of a fair trial to me is that both sides of the equation, the prosecution and the defense, have all of the information, and they each have the exact same information. There's no, nothing that's been, using your terminology, cherry-picked out. They have all of the information to move forward with the trial, and there's effective counsel on both sides, prosecution and defense, and the jury gets to hear everything in its entirety with nothing left out. And that did not happen in this case, clearly. And something that I brought up to you in an email that I haven't talked about during the interview yet, but is very sad to me, and I'm not an attorney, so I can't say that I understand the process, but it reminded me when I was listening to your episodes about the investigation, and you were going through that police report, and you mentioned the name of the defense attorney that Deborah had, Jeff Kearney. And I had forgotten about that, but your listeners should know that when Deborah was originally charged and they were preparing for her trial, she had a team of privately retained defense attorneys who are very well respected, very competent in Fort Worth, Jeff Kearney and Reagan Wynn. And they both were hired and being paid privately by the family to represent Deborah in this case. And at some point along the way, obviously, the family ran out of money. The funds went dry, however that happened. And Deborah could no longer afford the hourly fees for these highly competent, privately retained defense attorneys. 
And they apparently, and this is my presumption, they apparently believed enough in her case. And I'm saying that because they went to the judge and offered to continue to represent Deborah for the appointed rate. And for your audience that doesn't understand that, there are appointed cases where indigent defendants get appointed a defense attorney because they can't afford counsel of their own. And then there's private attorneys where you're paying typically, you know, several hundred dollars an hour. Very expensive. They're very expensive to retain. And apparently, Jeff Kearney and Reagan Wynn believed enough in her case and wanted to represent her that they told the judge they would be willing to continue being her legal representation for the appointed fee rate. And the judge, there's something, and I'm sure Allison can explain this to you better, there's something called the wheel in uh, criminal courts where, as an attorney, you put your name in the hat, so to speak, to be appointed on cases, and they rotate through that list. And Judge Stefano was telling me, again, she was still currently working in that uh, Tarrant County system, that the judge in Deborah's case refused to let Jeff Kearney and Reagan Wynn continue to represent Deborah. And her reason, and again, this is secondhand knowledge because this is what was told to me, the reason for her refusal to let them continue to represent her is that they were not next on the wheel or the list for the appointed cases, which to me, again, makes no sense. I don't, you know, I'm not an attorney, so I'm not part of that process. But when you've got two highly competent private attorneys that are saying, look, we'll do it for the state's reduced appointed rate because we've already been representing her for X number of months and we've already put in all this time to to represent her. That doesn't make sense. So with that being in the equation, when I say that's very sad to me is I feel like Jeff Kearney and Reagan Wynn would have given her the fair trial. They would have done the investigation that needed to be done and they would have given her a fair chance at the jury coming to the right conclusion. And I should say this too, because I don't want your you or your listeners to get the the wrong idea. Just like you have said in several of your episodes, I cannot say that I'm a hundred percent convinced that she's innocent. If you ask me right now, if I have to sway either way, my feeling is that no, based on I'm a scientist, I look at the scientific physical evidence in addition to all the other stuff with the investigation. My feeling is that there's definitely reasonable doubt. And that's the burden of proof in our criminal justice system. You have to think someone's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And I feel like all of the stuff that you're bringing out in your podcast, had it been known at the time of trial and presented correctly during trial, my feeling is that there would have been several jurors that had some reasonable doubt about her guilt. The outcome of the trial very well have been different. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. You know, I'm. I, I definitely feel that she hasn't received, she didn't receive a fair trial and, and, and most certainly reasonable doubt for me. You know, I, I can't tell you that I'm 100% certain of her factual innocence, but I can tell you that in my opinion, there's, there's definite reasonable doubt because the first thing that you need to do to me as a prosecutor is prove to me that she even could have committed this crime. And they never even made an attempt to prove when the crime occurred or where she was at. You know, or where you know where Deb was at, and you know, so far a lot of the evidence is, seems to be indicating that she was long gone before the murder the murders occurred, and I've seen nothing in the in the state's case to to make me believe otherwise yet. Well, and I agree with you on everything you just said, but again, being I try to err on the side of my expertise and from the science, I do tend to agree with the medical examiner that testified during her trial. I mean, he testified that he did not believe that Deborah could have committed the crimes that, you know, the the repeated bludgeoning and stabbing of, of the two victims. He, you know, he stated that physically he didn't think she was capable of doing that. So I, I tend to kind of agree with that. And then all of the limited DNA stuff that we know, and you and I have discussed, you know, it is quite intriguing that where her DNA was found was only a single source sample. There's no mixtures. Her her DNA is not mixed in with any, either of the victim's DNA throughout the house. That's intriguing and perplexing. And then what I did, I couldn't help myself after our last interview. I know I had told you that I, I want to see the actual DNA results, the electropharograms, and I want the report from what was done by the Fort Worth PD's lab, which we don't have. But I couldn't help myself but go back and do a deeper dive into those summary reports. And even those summary reports, I mean, I've put together a little presentation and sent it to you because there's quite a few things in there that are very interesting as well, and they seem to indicate the same things that you're pointing out about the investigation side of this, that they kind of, you know, got tunnel vision and seemed to only look for things that pointed towards her guilt and didn't spend enough time on things that could have been exculpatory. Can you can you walk us through that summary? I, I've read through it and you make some pretty good points there. To just kind of explain to the listeners the, the issues that you found in the DNA reports. Sure. I mean, I'll go through it step by step. So first of all, again, we now know, thank you for going doing a deeper dive into that uh, detective 
police report, we now know that Port Worth PD did, they were the crime lab that initially started the DNA testing in this case, and we don't have any documentation of that. And again, that's a big no-no in casework. We're not allowed to do that. We have to share everything that was attempted and done and what the results were. Five months after the murder, 70 items were sent to that private lab, which Gene Screen was eventually bought out by Orchid Cellmark, so it's the same lab. But the initial private lab report is, the heading is Gene Screen, and the, the secondary follow-up report is Orchid Cellmark, but it's the same lab, just so your listeners know. Fort Worth PD submitted 70 items to Orchid Cellmark five months after the murders, and the vast majority of those 70 items were evidentiary items. There were Deborah, the two victims' DNA, and I think her husband, Deborah's husband's cheek swab, and I think the adopted daughter's cheek swab reference samples were submitted. But, you know, over 90% of the samples that were submitted were evidentiary items. And what's interesting about those 70 items that were tested, and I should say they were submitted in March, um, so four to five months after the murders. And just to further reiterate what I've been saying about they would have prioritized, they would have flagged this evidence as being a high-profile case, you know, push it through regardless of the backlog. And you can, by the way, with private labs, you can pay extra for expedited service or expedited testing so that they, you know, put it more upfront in the lineup so that you get your results more quickly. I don't know if that was done in this case. But the 70 items of evidence that were submitted for DNA testing to that private lab in March, the first DNA results report was a month later in April. So that further kind of reinforces what I've been saying and telling you that, you know, this was obviously a priority case. For them to test 70 items for DNA within a matter of four weeks or so is a lot of work. And that's on top, you know, this is not the only case they're working. That's on top of all of their other caseload. Right. With the results in the summary report that was dated April 2002, out of all those items that were tested, Deborah's DNA was only found on two items. And that was the kitchen drawer and the dining, that finger mark on the dining room table. So, you know, that could be that could be arguably innocuous, you know, if she did indeed, from what we've all been told, regularly visit their house and help do dishes and clean up and that kind of thing. So her DNA was only found on two items out of those 70 items that were tested. And within those 70 items, what I found very interesting is that they did indeed test Lloyd Courtney and Agnes Courtney's fingernails. And I had said during my previous interview with you that I thought that would be one of the best routes to go because there was evidence in the autopsy report of defensive wounds on both of the victims. So conceivably, they fought back. You know, they fought for their lives. And that's a big uh, target area that we go for in violent crimes to try to recover the DNA of the perpetrator or perpetrators. And I should point out that they did test the fingernails of both the victims, and there's no foreign DNA at all 
underneath their fingernails, which initially I thought, hmm, like that's really, I don't see how that's plausible. You know, I'm a, I'm a possible versus probable person and I thought it's possible, but it's more probable that I would have expected DNA underneath their fingernails. But then you said something in one of your recent episodes about the neighbor, the veterinarian that reported the sighting of the strange man in the backyard around the time of the murders and that he was wearing coveralls, which are pretty thick, durable material, and she said possibly gloves. Right. And can I make one... Let me, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just one other point that I didn't make in the episode I want to point out now just so everybody knows. I looked up the historical weather data for that day, and between the hours of, I think we said 10 a.m. till 3 p.m., the temperature was right around 87 to 90 degrees during that time. So that should just be noted as far as yeah. the guy wearing the full body coveralls and gloves in the backyard. Yeah, I mean, I lived in Dallas-Fort Worth for 20 years, and I like to joke that there's three seasons in Dallas. It's summer or, or Fort Worth. It's summer. It was just summer, and it's about to be summer. I mean, you wear as little clothing as you can there because it's so hot unless you have to dress for work. So anyway, I thought when there was no foreign DNA reportedly recovered from the fingernails of either of the victims, to me that coverall scenario makes sense because if someone with those thick canvas coveralls is attacking me and I'm grabbing at them and scratching at them, there's no way I'm getting even close to the skin. And then the gloves, if he was indeed wearing gloves, that might explain the minimal foreign DNA that was found around the house, although it does conflict with the fingerprints the unknown fingerprints that were found, which I can't remember the details on that, and that's for you to discuss Well, and the, later. the details are confusing because at one point it says they found two prints that didn't match anybody connected to the case, and then the next reports we see, they said that none of the prints are comparable, but it, in a previous report it said that they were compared. So your guess is as good as mine about the fingerprints. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, so 70 items sent for testing. Deborah's DNA is only found on the kitchen drawer and on the dining room table. Her DNA, no DNA is found underneath the fingernails of the victims. And amongst these 70 items, um, you know, some of the things that were tested were, you know, remember that, that heavy solid wood like side table mm-hmm. that they said or presumably came from the living room that was used to beat uh, Lloyd with, and it was broken into pieces and laying next to him in the dining room. They, they they tested those as well. Her DNA is not on those items. And then, you know, not on the her DNA is not on the computer keyboard that they said she allegedly typed up that note that was stuck to Lloyd's leg in house uh, on their computer. Her DNA is not on the keyboard. It's not on the knife. It's not on the one skillet handle that they tested. You know, it's only on the the kitchen drawer and the dining room table. But I kept looking. I, I, I looked at the results in that report. I told you they put, you know, they put those 
allele data results in table format. And I noticed something that I swear when I first saw it, I thought, I must be seeing, I was tired, it was late at night, and I thought, I must be seeing something. And I put this in the, the presentation that I sent to you. So, I, of those 70 items, items 48 through 64 are pieces of the four cast iron skillets. And it's already been established that those four cast iron skillets, aside from the stabbing, were key weapons that were used in both of those murders. So there were 18 pieces of those cast iron skillets that were tested for DNA. But if you look at the table in the summary report, the items are listed consecutively in terms of items received. They're listed consecutively from item 001 to 070. Further down in the report, when they're listing the DNA results, if you look closely at it, it skips, it ends, the table ends at sample 047, so one sample before the cast iron skillet, and skips immediately to sample 065, which is one sample beyond that set of cast iron skillets. And so at first I thought, hmm, okay, well... Let me read the full report because maybe somewhere down in the report they note that they didn't recover any DNA from those 18 pieces of cast iron skillet. And that is not stated anywhere. However, they did state, they made a statement in their summary report that there were three items of evidence where insufficient DNA was present to obtain a profile. And it's sample 1, 2, and 28. So it's not samples 48 through 64, which were all the skillet, cast iron skillet pieces. So just to make sure I'm understanding and the listeners are understanding what you're saying here is all these pieces of cast iron skillet are documented that they were tested for DNA. The results are left out of the report and elsewhere in the report it states that there were only three items of evidence that didn't have DNA results, and those three items were not the skillets, which means, you know, if, if, we're, if we're connecting dots, if I'm understanding it right, that they did pull DNA off of those skillets and then didn't report the results. Well, I mean, that's what it looks like to me. You're welcome, by the way, to share that report on your site if you want, because it lays it out pretty clearly. but. It's very odd that the, if you look at the evidence received, so they basically give you an itemized list of all the evidence that was received, and it's sample 1 through 70. And then in the results table, they list all of those items in the DNA results, but it's almost like, you know, like if you're working on an Excel spreadsheet and you have 70 items or 70 rows of data in your spreadsheet, and then you decide you don't want to include, you know, 18 rows of that 70-row spreadsheet, and you highlight those rows and clip them out. That's exactly how the report is presented. Mm -hmm. They're missing. That data is missing. And so if you go again, and I, you know, I didn't immediately, I was like, hmm, that's peculiar, so let me read the rest of the report. If you go through the effort of making the statement insufficient DNA was present 
to obtain a profile from samples 001, 002, and 028, why would you not just say, um, nor were, or nor were sufficient DNA results obtained from items 48 through 64? There's no statement in there about that. So my question is, you know, what's going on here? You know, did they, there's also no statement further in the report because at first I thought, well, did they make a decision not to test those particular items, which would not have made sense to me given that they are key weapons that were used in the murders. But I looked for that also. I looked for, you know, did they make a statement somewhere in here that they decided not to test those 18 items? And there's no statement anywhere in there about that. Well, and you would expect that those items would be critically important to test because, you know, as I've mentioned on the the podcast before, from what it appears, from what I've seen, I don't think that the knife found stabbed into Lloyd's pant leg was the murder weapon, not at all. So the only weapons that we know were actually used, you know, not, not a drop of blood on a table that could have other explanations, but we know for a fact the cast iron skillets and the table legs or that, that table are the only weapons we know for certain were used in the murder, so it would make zero sense not to test them for DNA. Yeah, it's it's very perplexing <laughs> that conveniently the key weapons that were used in the murder are the 18 items. These are all pieces. Remember, all the skillets broke, so mm-hmm. these are all pieces of the skillet. But it's interesting that that particular, those, the results for those 18 items of evidence are spliced out of the table, and they're not included. But, oh, but it gets better. I can move on with with additional yeah let's do it review so that was the initial submission of evidence to the private dna lab that occurred in march so four to five months after the murders and again 70 items were submitted for dna testing and only two of those items had deborah's single source dna on it the kitchen drawer and the dining room table and the weapon, the results for the weapons, uh, cast iron skillets, were omitted from the report. So then what happened, so the second DNA summary report is dated in, is de- dated December 2002. And if you look closely at that summary report, the additional DNA testing that was done for that report was evidence that was submitted Additional evidence that was submitted in August of 2002. So basically, Fort Worth PD submitted, they did their own DNA testing. We don't know what happened with that. Four to five months after the murders, they sent 70 items, which presumably those 70 items were items that they thought were most pertinent or relevant for testing. They didn't get results back that were really incriminating for Deborah. So in August, so this is 10 months after the murder. They submitted an additional 12 items to that same private DNA lab for testing. And amongst those 12 additional items that were submitted for DNA testing, one of those items was the trash can lid that, I don't know if you, if you want to remind your, <laughs> your listeners that that was the lid that initially they said they didn't collect or they didn't see anything of forensic relevance on it. And then they came back later during trial testimony 
and said they later went back and looked at it and there was blood on it and it belongs to Deborah. Right. And that was multiple officers, crime scene investigators on the scene, all said there's nothing on the lid. Yeah. I mean, that, that to me, that falls under the things that make you go, hmm. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So again, ten months after the murder, and after having seventy other items of evidence tested. They, that leaving out the results for the cast iron, the 18 cast iron skillet pieces. In the second round of DNA testing, 10 months after the murders, this is where they came back with Deborah's DNA is present on the door trim of the doorway to the bedroom where Agnes's body was found. It's on the mirror that's on the hall side of that door that Again, I know we don't want to go down that that conspiracy theory route, but I talked about how when I was at Judge Stefano's house and we watched that crime scene video, you know, a bazillion times and zoomed in and paused, et cetera. There, and again, it's a grainy video, but there's no visible blood smear, blood stain on that mirror. And again, you'd think, and I'm just plain devil's advocate here, You'd think if there's blood on the door and on the mirror of the door to the room where one of the victims was found, that those two stains would have been prioritized in that first round of testing that was sent to Arkansas Mark in March. Right. But those, those items were not tested in March. They were part of a second round of evidence submission 10 months after the murder. And four months after Deborah's arrest. I know. When was she arrested? I don't remember the date on that. She was arrested in April of 2002. So four months after she was arrested, leading up to trial, they sent more evidence, these additional items out for testing. Exactly. Yeah, it was August of 2002 that they sent these additional items. And so the second round of testing, again, is where they found Deborah's DNA on the door trim the mirror on that door to the bedroom where Agnes's body was found, and the trash can lid. And the um, the caller ID box, which is interesting, uh, the, what you found there. Yeah. So, again, and I, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm working completely from the summary reports, and I do, in order for me to be 100% accurate with my assessment, I do need to see the electroparagrams and the actual DNA results. But just for, I don't know if pure entertainment is the right word, but just to see, okay, let's see what we can tell working with what we do have. That collar, so they swad the collar ID box and the cord. And if I remember, that cord had been cut and they had hypothesized that Agnes had tried to call out from that back bedroom for help and the attacker had cut the cord, if I remember correctly. Right. They well, they they definitely said that it was cut. Yeah. So that caller ID box, that that swab, 
had a mixture of DNA recovered. And again, we don't, we don't analyze DNA mixtures uh, manually anymore. We analyze them with computer software programs that conduct what's called probabilistic genotyping. But I, I do this initial screening method with DNA mixture cases that I work where I put together just a basic Excel spreadsheet and I list the profile of the victims and the suspect or suspects. And then adjacent to that, I list all of the alleles that are present in the mixture for each of the marker, DNA markers that are tested. And in, if I do a comparison, and again, you're welcome to share this presentation that I put together with your audience. If I compare all of the alleles in the mixture to Agnes and Lloyd, the two victims, and to Deborah, there are still 13 foreign alleles that are present in that mixture that don't belong to Agnes, Lloyd, or Deborah. So they're from some other contributor. If I go even further and I take the victim's DNA, the comparison to the victim's DNA out, and I just look at Deborah's DNA profile, and I compare her known reference DNA profile to all of the alleles that are in the mixture recovered from the caller ID box, there are 23 foreign alleles present on that caller ID box or cord, whichever portion was swabbed, that are not consistent with Deborah's DNA. And there's a Y chromosome present. So there's male DNA present. Now, you could argue that maybe it's Lloyd Courtney's DNA because it's his house and it's his caller ID box. But that would not explain all of the other foreign alleles that are in that mixture. So this is the part that was interesting to me. But I can't really assess. I know that there's a bunch of foreign alleles in that mixture. And they very well could be alleles from the true perpetrator's DNA if Deborah indeed did not do this. But without the electropharograms and without access to the raw data to do a mixture analysis with one of these probabilistic genotyping software programs, we, we won't know. Is there a, a base number of alleles necessary for you as an analyst? I know you don't you don't match DNA to people, but to say that, you know, within, you know, pretty good odds you can identify that this likely was the perpetrator. Is, is there, is there a, a number of alleles that you need to, in order to be able to do that? Well, I mean, that can be tricky, to be honest with you. So one of the things that we've done in the past three years, which, again, is I think would be interesting. To, it would be interesting to do some retesting on the evidence in this case, because in the past three years, one of the things that we've done to increase our discriminatory power to see if we can include or exclude someone from a DNA sample recovered from the evidence is we've increased the, num the total number of DNA markers that we analyzed from 13 that were mandated by the FBI during the time of Deborah's trial to now it's been bumped up to 20. And so the more data, the more markers you test, the more data you obtain. And if someone's obviously guilty, that's more data to further incriminate them. But if they're innocent, you have more data from which or through which to exclude them as a contributor. Okay. And th that 13 number is why I was asking. I thought that's what stuck in my head that you know, the FBI required 13 Less, or markers. Yeah. Right. 13 markers. 
So if you test 13, the SBI's mandated 13 core markers or core loci, which was what was mandatory during the time of this trial, humans are diploid organisms, so we have two alleles for every marker that was tested. So if you test 13 markers, a complete DNA profile is 26 alleles because we have two alleles on each marker. Mm -hmm. With that mixture, which based on what's put in the summary report, again, I can't, without seeing the electropharograms, I can't make a formal judgment. But based on the summary report, that mixture that was recovered from the caller ID box is a mixture of two individuals. And I just told you that a full DNA profile of 13 loci has 26 alleles, and there's 23 alleles present in that mixture that don't match Deborah. And that was with the collection methods and extraction methods used to do that testing in 2002. If now it may have the sample may be completely consumed, if it weren't consumed using new technology that you all use now, do you think it's it's likely that you could possibly get enough for a DNA match off of that evidence? Well, I mean, I think I've told you, maybe I mentioned this previously, the bulk of my career has been doing forensic DNA analysis on the most challenging of challenging samples. I work on human skeletal remains, and I, I regularly, using today's technology, I regularly get full DNA profiles from skeletal remains that are decades and even hundreds of years old. So that's how good our technology is. So I think not just this color ID box issue, this mixture. I mean, obviously that I definitely think, assuming it's not been destroyed, retesting that with newer technology could give us more data and more more data to definitively exclude or include her as a contributor. But all of this other evidence, you know, those 18 pieces of cast iron skillets that were conveniently left spliced out of the results table and, and our key weapons used in the murders. I mean, I'd love to re-swab those and retest those. I mean, any of this evidence that's remaining, our methods have improved so dramatically since 2002, 2003. In the interest of truth and justice, not to use a pun, it would be warranted and a good idea to just retest everything that remains that's available for testing. But that, you know, that brings me back to one of the points I made earlier in this conversation about the reason why we are not allowed to not report testing that we've done is because part, even if you get no results at all, part of the documentation of the work that you're doing is how much of the sample you're consuming and what remains for future testing. And we don't know that because we don't have the reports from Fort Worth PD's DNA lab. So again, that's a big no-no. We're, we're not allowed to omit negative results. We have to report everything that we do with that evidence, and that becomes a permanent part of the documentation in the case file in that case. Right. And from a legal standpoint and the, the post-conviction work that I do, and obviously you know you know these terms, but I mean, if there was exculpatory DNA testing done and it was not turned over to the defense as it has not been turned over to us, that would be a 
massive and incredible Brady violation and likely would result in the conviction being overturned. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. But, you know, not to mention the fact that I'm a big believer in transparency. And if there wasn't something exculpatory or something that they were worried about, why hide it? You know, that the, the, right. the saying goes, he who has nothing to hide hides nothing. Why not? What What do they have to lose by sharing that documentation? Unless there's something exculpatory in there. Right. And that, uh, as we as we draw to a conclusion here, loops back to what I was saying earlier, that if it was just one issue, that would seem like a conspiracy theory that this evidence was hidden. But given everything we know now about how this case was investigated and how it was documented, it, it is certainly at this point not unreasonable to hypothesize that any and all exculpatory evidence was hidden and left out of the documentation in this case. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'd like to point out too, I, you know, I work where I work now, the vast majority of my colleagues here are police officers, former police officers, current forensic scientists, or former forensic scientists. And all of us do this type of work. Um, so this is not a, I'm not someone that only works for the defense and I'm sure you're not either. I mean, the title of your podcast is truth and justice. It's not, pro-prosecution or pro-defense. So, you know, I think all of us that have worked in this field for a while know that it's not a perfect system and we have to have checks and balances. We have to have people reviewing things on both sides. It's the only way to ensure that we get the right person and put the right person in prison. No one's trying, I guess what I'm saying is no one's trying to get a guilty person out of prison here. And I can 100% say that None of the attorneys that I've worked with at the Innocence Project of Texas are interested in that. There have been numerous cases that I've worked for them, that I've consulted on for them, that have, where I've not discovered things like this, issues that need to be considered like this. And I've called them and said, oh, you know, I hope you have something else as grounds for an appeal because the DNA evidence is very solid. And the response that I get from them is, oh, well, okay, you know, that, that's fine. That's what I needed to know. That's what I hired you for. I just wanted to know the truth. Right. Now I know the DNA was correct or whatever. Yeah, they don't have enough time or resources to mess around trying to get guilty people out of prison. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I hate, I had heard in some of your earlier episodes that some of your listeners were posting on the fan page that we were, you know, accusing the Fort Worth Police Department or their forensic lab of doing something unscrupulous or illegal or whatever. And, you know, my response to that is like, we're not going after, we're, we're just presenting what we've got. I mean, what happened in this case? I mean, you can't deny whether you think she's guilty or innocent. You can't deny that there are just huge, huge, huge issues that had she had her, had she been able to keep her original defense attorney's that were representing her, which, again, who are two highly competent, very well-respected defense attorneys in Fort Worth. And if those two defense attorneys had presented all of the stuff that you've enlightened your audience with <laughs> um, during the original trial, I'd put my money on that there would have been enough reasonable doubt for that jury to acquit her. I agree very much so. After I got off the phone with Dr. Ambers, I did a little research of my own 
and was able to positively confirm that the Carla Davis named in Detective Hardy's report all throughout whenever it mentions DNA testing is in fact the same person as Carla Carmichael who was fired from the Fort Worth Police Department Crime Lab in 2003 for failure to follow proper protocols in DNA testing. More on Carla, the crime lab, the handwritten note from Detective Hardy, and the computer forensic analysis performed on the Courtney's computer next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood-Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. And Mike can be found at MurbGaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.